Welcome back to STEM Fatale, your Women in Science History podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Emlyn Gremlin. And I'm your other co-host, Dr. Emma Dilemma. And I'm in my closet. (laughs) In the dark. Oh, really? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, Andres is is like at it technically at a scientific conference oh wow i didn't realize in the office that's awkward so i'm in the closet of the office wow with the door closed crazy um so it's so the lights turn off and i I can't change that so i'm in the dark wow 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 wow. but with coffee and donuts so i am hyped up you better not fall asleep during this exciting story it's probably good the lights are off. It's like keeping me at some modicum of of non crazy, um, I guess. <laughs> non crazy, yeah. That's it's funny. limiting the insanity that is uh-huh. this closet. Well, I'm just in the bedroom on the bed with all my computers spread out and everything. Nice. No kittens nearby because nope. these kittens are chatty. I'll tell you that. Yeah, you got a new batch of kittens. Yeah. They're so cute. They're very cute. I like their, like, sp- spottiness. Yeah, they're very cute. They're kind of scrappy looking. It's adorable. One <laughs> of them likes to nuzzle in my hair and, like, oh. sit on the back of my neck underneath my hair. <laughs> Love it's it. It's really funny. Anyway. It's good to have some quarantine kitties. Yeah, they're very entertaining, for sure. <laughs> yeah, still in the middle of this quarantine. Yeah. For forever and for always. <laughs> um, is kind of what it feels like. So, Emlyn, I'm gonna do something yes. slightly unconventional today. <laughs> uh it, this is the time for unconventional <laughs> thinking. Um still kind of coronavirus somewhat related. Okay, so okay. let me back up just a sec. Okay. So Given the hype around, you know, a potential coronavirus vaccine, right, that they're researching and trying to produce right now, um, I started searching for a scientist that was instrumental in either the research or implementation of any vaccine, you know? Yes, awesome. So, and especially because there's so much misinformation about vaccines right now and how they're uh-huh. produced. And yes. people often think they're just kind of made by these big government groups that, you know, there's no like personal story behind it or mm-hmm. people even, you know, I feel like a lot of conspiracies are like, oh, the CDC is this evil corporation, but it's like people work at the CDC, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, humans who are, you know, of varying levels of, anyway, I'm just, I I wanted to make vaccine research a little bit more personal, I guess. I love it. I'm, I'm on pins and needles. (laughs) And so lo and behold, I came across a group of three women. (laughs) Yes. 
Dr. Pearl Kendrick, Dr. Grace Eldering, and Loni Clinton Gordon, who together developed and improved a vaccine that and were instrumental in its early testing and distribution. I'm so here for this. Yeah. So, okay. So, do you know what vaccine this is by any chance or um, any guesses? Can you give me, like, what's the time? The vaccine was developed in the 40s, 1940s. <sighs> and it's for a bacteria. Um, and you probably, you have this vaccine. Pertussis? Yes. Really? Yeah. I, I didn't even know if pertussis was a bacteria. <laughs> yeah. So um, most people who have been vaccinated, you know, gotten the regular schedule of vaccines, have the vaccine for pertussis, which it's now a combined vaccine with tetanus mm -hmm. and diphtheria. Sometimes yep. it's called like Tdap and other kind times it's called DTAP or whatever, you know. Yep. Um, but yeah, so they developed the, the first widely distributed vaccine for pertussis, otherwise known as whooping cough. Okay. I was, I was thinking like, I don't even know what pertussis really does, but. Yeah. So, well, I'll cough. tell you, the CDC. Oh, you, you <laughs> do tell me. So I have it even right here, just in case no one's ever. Someone listening hasn't heard of whooping cough or pertussis. Um, the CDC says that pertussis is known for uncontrollable violent coughing, which often makes it hard to breathe. After cough fits, someone with pertussis often needs to take deep breaths, which result in a whooping sound, which is why it's called the whooping oh. cough. Oh, God. Yeah. And it can be affect so people of all ages, but it's very mm -hmm. deadly for babies. Oh, yeah. It's like the the inverse coronavirus. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Benjamin Button coronavirus. <laughs> well, isn't Corona the Benjamin? I don't know. Yeah, it's just inverse, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but let's see. So yeah, I know we usually only cover one woman. Even though all the women we talk about usually work on teams, but this yeah. whole discovery was very collaborative, so I figured, why not just do all three? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm so excited for this. Not throuple. What is a group of three that's not in a sexual relationship? <laughs> I was gonna say threesome, um, but also that's also it's true. But it's yeah, it's now used this um, uh, uh, trifecta. 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 Let's just go with trifecta. Yeah. Okay. Doesn't. It's not at all related to, you know. Let's go on. Okay. Go on. <laughs> all right. So these three women all met up in Grand Rapids at a state health department in Michigan in the 1930s and 1940s. But first, I wanted to take a brief look at each of their lives leading up to that time. So Loni Clinton Gordon uh, was born Loni Clinton in Arkansas in 1915, and her family moved to Michigan when she was a child. 
1939, she graduated from Michigan State with a degree in home economics and chemistry. I'm guessing that's two degrees, but I don't know. Maybe they were combined at the time. Seems like a strange combination. I mean, you know, yeah. baking, chemistry. I feel like, let's yeah. let's say it's two. Yeah. And and she had an a big an interest in nutrition. And so she soon started a job as a dietitian at a mental institution. But the doctor there, I guess, treated her poorly. And so she returned to Grand Rapids and began looking for other jobs okay. as a dietitian. However, she had a difficult time because as she was told White male chefs would not accept dietary or nutritional advice from an African-American woman at uh-huh. that time. And she was African-American. So, yeah, she had a difficult time finding a job as a dietitian. And so in 1944, in 1944, however, she found a job through a friend. And that job was with a woman named Dr. Pearl Kendrick, who mm. ran the Michigan Department of Health Grand Rapids Lab. Gotcha. Okay. So that is Loni Gordon's background, and I couldn't even find any more about her, which is disappointing. Yeah. But, um, okay. So Pearl Kendrick, another woman of the hour, <laughs> was born in Wheaton, Illinois in 1890, and she had actually contracted whoop- whooping cough when she was three years old. But, you know, obviously survived it and went on to be a healthy lady. Yep. <laughs> she went to college at Syracuse University, where she obtained a degree in zoology and studied philosophy, something said. She then moved to New York City, where she did some research in bacteriology at Columbia uh-huh. and also yeah, and also worked as a high school science teacher and principal. So oh. really multitasking. There. Yeah, it's <laughs> a lot of work. Uh, yeah, at some point she left her job as a principal and accepted a position as an assistant in the New York State Department of Health laboratories. And in 1920, that lab offered her a promotion, but instead she took a job with the Michigan Department of Health in Lansing, where she began working on a test for syphilis. Mm. Yes. I don't know any more about that, but that's what she did for a bit. <laughs> her boss, um, C.C. Young, was so impressed by her hard work and dedication that in 1926 she was promoted to associate director of the Western Michigan branch in Grand Rapids. So this is still at the Department of Health. Awesome. The State Department of Health. Um, and I, after a year or two as associate director, she took a short leave of absence from her position to obtain a PhD in microbiology from Johns Hopkins. How do you take a short stint <laughs> to receive a PhD? I would yeah. say my PhD was not a short stint. It was an eon. <laughs> Yeah, it was a long, treacherous... <laughs> An era, one might say. Yeah. Uh, so then, okay, so when she received her PhD, she went back to her job as associate director, this is 1932, and began working with a woman named Grace Eldering, mm-hmm. our third woman of the hour, on a vaccination for whooping cough. Okay. Okay. 
And let's rewind one more time to talk a little bit about Grace. So Grace was born in 1900 in Myers, Montana. She also suffered from whooping cough as a child and would never forget her experience with the disease. She went to college at the University of Montana and graduated with degrees in biology and English and decided that she wanted to study bacteriology. (laughs) After working for a brief time as an elementary school teacher, she began volunteering in the Lansing Department of Health's Bureau of Laboratories. And once she was there, she was quickly promoted to a paid assistant position at the Grand Rapids lab that Pearl Kendrick was running. Okay. So I know that's a lot, but that's uh, how all our ladies kind of ended up in Michigan at the state. I want to make a map (laughs) of this. (laughs) So, no, just like where they all started and the location of their meeting. Yeah, Montana, New York, uh, Illinois. And then they all kind of met in the middle, I guess. All right, so let's talk about, yeah, so here, 1932, is where their collaborative work on whooping cough begins. And most of this is just Grace Eldering and Pearl Mm -hmm. Kendrick for a while, because Loney didn't join them until about 10 years into the project, so I'll just discuss their early research first. So... At the time, in the 30s, whooping cough killed about 6,000 people in the United States per year. And most of these people were children under the age of five. Like, almost 95% of deaths were children under the age of five. And infants die, at this time, infants died from whooping cough more than all other childhood diseases combined. So it was basically the deadliest disease an mm-hmm. infant could catch, and it was really devastating to communities when there was an outbreak. So although the causative agent of whooping cough, Bordadella pertussis bacteria, had been identified in 1906, there was still no universal vaccine for it over 25 years later. Though there had been recent discoveries that certain strains of the bacteria might be better for making a vaccine than others. And if anyone listening doesn't know, like vaccines can be produced in a myriad of ways. Their main aim is just to stimulate an immune system to fight against a disease, right? Without fighting it so hard that you get symptoms. (laughs) So in the case of whooping cough, a researcher in Georgia named Layla Denmark, another awesome lady in science, had developed a successful vaccine using killed pertussis bacterial cells. So basically these cells, when injected, could signal to an immune system like, hey, we're foreign, we're not from this body, right? Um, And so the immune system responds and makes memory cells. But since the cells are inactive, they won't actually reproduce in your body the way living cells can. So they're not going to harm you, right? So um, although she had developed this vaccine, it was very localized. Like she just used a local strain and just been testing it on people in her area. 
And so after a recent outbreak of whooping cough in Grand Rapids, Pearl became inspired to research and find a vaccine that would work not only for their region, but elsewhere, right? And so she asked for permission to begin researching it. Pearl specifically proposed a controlled field study involving local health professionals and the public to help her test the lab's new version of the vaccine. But these types of studies were only just becoming commonplace. So she and Grace, and they worked very closely on this from the start, they had to create all the forms and procedures for the study from scratch. Um, Meanwhile, they both still had to complete their lab's normal duties, which were basically carrying out public health tests on local water and milk to to test that they were safe to like. Oh, so eat. they were like the <laughs> early forms of like FDA or USDA kind of. Yeah, local. sort of. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. So they were only allowed to research the whooping cough vaccine outside. Of their normal mm-hmm. working hours and on their own time. So, yeah, they completed much of this beginning work on the vaccine and its trials <laughs> at night. So, like, they had to find so, participants to come at night and, like, get injected? Or was it... Well, I'm going to describe what they did. So... But yeah, a lot of their lab stuff was at night, and then they had help from, like, they were able to basically get the whole community to rally around this trial, which is really cool. Um, Yeah, but it was, I think, a lot of work, (laughs) like, either way, yeah. So the first step in their research was not directly related to the vaccine, but was more of an effort to reach out to the local community and control the spread of the disease. So to start, they designed a way to test individuals to see if they had the disease. So to test individuals, Pearl and Grace filled Petri dishes with a medium that fostered rapid growth of whooping cough bacteria, and they called them, quote, cough plates, because they would give them to doctors, and if the doctor had a patient with a cough, they would have the patient cough onto the plate. (laughs) And then a nurse would rush the plate back to the lab and Grace and Pearl would study the plate and like raise the bacteria on the plate to see if if there was whooping cough. Aw, raising the plate. So cute. Yeah, so definitely different from like coronavirus tests. (laughs) It'd be dangerous. Yeah, it's just like, oh, let's just collect the bacteria yeah. and grow it. <laughs> but I guess they're immune. I mean, yeah, they've already true. gotten whooping cough. So, um, anyway, so from these studies, they actually figured out a quarantine plan for their region because they figured out that most children were non-infectious by week four. And so, yeah, they essentially decided that if you have whooping cough, you should be quarantined for about 30 days, maybe a little bit longer. That's so long to be infectious. One, that's awesome that they were thinking about quarantine back then. But also, that's so long. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was the public health efforts and 
And people in the community were really into this. Like, the government would put notifications on people's doors that were like, these people are being quarantined. Like, you had to tell everyone. You know, everyone was kind of in on it. And I think partially it's because it was Mm -hmm. killing babies. Yeah, everybody wants to help. And Oh, yeah. And 30 days is a really long period of time, but... Another name for whooping cough is like the hundred days cough oh or God. something. Because yeah, it gives you like this horrible long term cough even after you're not infectious anymore. That's awful. So yeah. So yeah, they devised this plan essentially where they would need they decided that uh, after about thirty days and two consecutive negative cough plates people could be released from quarantine oh okay so they were like part of this yeah so they were basically testing people in their whole community which is really like these two women were running a whooping cough that's so cool (laughs) yeah in their spare time so that's and meanwhile they're they're researching the vaccine So here's a quote from Grace during this time. She says, we learned about the disease and the depression at the same time, because this was in the middle of the Great Depression. And she says, many of the families were very poor and their living conditions were pitiful. We listened to sad stories told by desperate fathers who could find no work. We collected specimens by the light of kerosene lamps from whooping, vomiting, strangling children. We saw what the disease could do. In the lab, we isolated the pertussis bacillus, not from every patient, but from most of them, in the early stages of the disease, and the cultures were saved and studied in every possible way. So, yeah, it's like the middle of the Depression, Great Depression, uh, they're going to, like, people's homes at night to test their babies. Oh, my God. Like, it was really wild. Yeah. And then coming back to the lab and monitoring bacterial growth, you know, it was really so. And full t- like full-time jobs, man. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this effort was, you know, kind of essential because it presumably slowed the spread of the disease while they were researching a vaccine in the meantime. And in 1933, they began to make autogenous vaccines for doctors that requested them, which essentially means that they would prepare these really specific vaccines from patients' bacterial cultures. So they would just kill, they would get a cough plate of the bacteria and then grow it up a little bit and then kill it and inject it back into patients to help them like build a a greater immune response faster. But they wanted to make a more general vaccine using several local strains of the bacteria and they needed permission from their boss who supported them except, you know, they still had to do Uh a normal job. But he said, uh, go ahead and do all you can with pertussis if it amuses you. <laughs> well, if it amuses you, like it's not that big a deal. Like you're not doing something that's worthwhile. Yeah. It's like weird because he did support them and he did help like 
appreciate these efforts and wanted them to find the vaccine. But it does sound a little like, oh, if, like, yeah, trivial, yeah, it sounds right? trivializing. Like, Maybe that's not what he meant, yeah. but it's, uh, like, it does yeah. kill lots of babies. Anyway. So, I mean, it doesn't amuse <laughs> yeah. me. Anyways. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. So in these early stages of vaccine development, Pearl and Grace tested the safety of their vaccines by injecting it into mice, but also into their ah. own arms. <laughs> so I guess you could say it amused them. <laughs> I mean, I would say it abused them, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's just, like, wild, right? You know, people um, inject... I won't even get into it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> However, they obviously need, needed to test it on a large group <laughs> then the, of Just people. the two of them? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> two people yeah. who are immune, too. Um, so to gain interest, they spoke at hospitals, medical societies, PTA groups, schools. They made public health exhibits and eventually gained, you know, a lot of pu local public interest in their project, including financial contributions just collected locally of about $3,000, oh, nice. <laughs> which considering it was the Great Depression was yeah. quite a bit of money. But it also, it wasn't mm -hmm. nearly enough, but it was enough for the first part of their trial. So they started their, their trial in 1934 and followed, over the next five years, they followed a group of more than 5,000 children in their area. Wow. And there were two groups, an experimental group and a control group, where the experimental group consisted of children who whose parents like voluntarily offered them to the city's health clinics to mm -hmm. be inoculated by the vaccine. And the control group was drawn from non-immune children from the same district in the city as the vaccinated gotcha. children. So it wasn't a perfect study design since the experimental group was voluntary. Um, but nonetheless, they ended the study with a little over 4,000 usable data nice. points. And it was also preferable to experimenting on orphan populations, <laughs> which was commonplace for testing vaccines and studying diseases oh at the God. time, which was really sad. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, me the mentally ill orphans, we did like all sorts of prisoners. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not that some of that doesn't still happen, it's but sad. it's less blatant, I think. Yeah. But it was also like people would see, people saw that the earliest stages of their vaccines mm -hmm. were effective. So I think yeah. that helped in getting parents to be like, yes, please, I would like to like put my child in this test you know oh yeah and i'm sure child. they saw like kids so. like kids in their neighborhoods dying of it and like how terrible it was yeah and of course like they had nurses and doctors um that were helping to identify to like follow up and identify cases of whooping cough among the study participants it was really this this whole community effort yeah. which was really cool when they ran out of money in 1936, they went to the first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, oh. for help. And 
she actually came and visited the lab and visited Grand Rapids for like a whole day. And she helped them secure funding for additional nice. workers. By 1938 and 1939, it was clear that the vaccine was working. The vaccinated children in the trial were much less like less likely to catch whooping cough, and if they did, they had milder cases, um, which probably just means their symptoms weren't as severe and the death yeah. rate was lower in vaccinated children. And so once this trial was done, they carried out another field try trial in New York City to essentially double check that the vaccine worked in different populations and again it was successful. So their vaccine began to enter mass production and began being produced nationally. And by 1942 they had received over $180,000 in funding from state and nice. federal grants. So <laughs> that's a lot more than their initial yeah. $3,000. And once the vaccine was approved for routine use in 1943, the infection and death rates from whooping cough had already begun to plummet. Okay. So at this point, their goal was to make the vaccine as effective as possible. So I think they had a decent vaccine, but people were still getting whooping cough that were mm -hmm. vaccinated and they just wanted to make it, you know, the best vaccine yeah. possible. Like no symptoms or low symptoms or very low infection rate with the vaccine, etc. Okay. And so this is where Loney Gordon comes in. So let's see. Their team had hired a group of female scientists to assist with their efforts, including Loney in 1944. And she was specifically tasked with testing thousands of culture plates to investigate different forms of the bacteria that might produce a better whooping cough vaccine. Okay. In this research, she discovered that the best medium for culturing bacteria was sheep's blood. And once she had discovered this, she was able to find an incredibly virulent form of the bacteria that no one had ever cultured Ooh. before. And which means like, it grew really rapidly, yeah. probably, is what I would guess virulent means in this sense. Uh, it just reproduces incredibly rapidly and maybe causes more extreme symptoms in patients. Yeah, forms. potentially like lysis cells and growth yeah. infects mm -hmm. more quickly. Yeah, exactly. I used to do a lot of stuff with sheep's blood. Oh, really? Yeah, for all my toxic algae stuff. Oh. Um, determining how toxic right. the algae is you that. use sheep's blood and how much the sheep's blood cells lice and how much hemoglobin's like released into the water oh. tells you how much toxins are in the water anyways wow the more you know yeah i wouldn't want to really work with it's sheep's very viscous blood, but <laughs> and because this strain was so virulent it was able to produce a much more effective vaccine. Mm. And I think that's because, you know, once you basically destroy this virulent strain, I don't know, it must just produce a better immune yeah. response and like more memory cells than other strains mm -hmm. of it. Um, 
or a stronger immune response to Mm -hmm. the vaccine. That's interesting. Yeah, once this new strain was found, Pearl and Grace included it in the updated combination vaccine that they had been working on. So Pearl, I think, had this idea first that kids were getting a lot of vaccines all at the same time. And she was like, why not combine them? And so the three of them basically created the diphtheria tetanus whooping cough vaccine and <laughs> combination vaccine in 1948. Oh, so they they made like some early version of Tdap or DAPT or yeah, cool. Exactly. So I think other people had discovered those uh-huh. vaccines, but they were the ones that were like, let's combine them and just make yeah. it one shot. You know, I love it. Yeah. Less shots, but the better. Yeah. And let's see. So by that time, 1948, whooping cough infection rates had dropped by 25% in the United States, and there were very few deaths from the disease. And by 1960, they had dropped to 5% in the U.S. Since the 1980s, there's been some resurgence of the Mm -hmm. disease with the most recent spike in 2012 when the CDC reported over 48,000 cases of pertussis in the U.S., which is the largest number of cases reported um, since 1955. So I looked into, like, what could cause this resurgence, and it's a couple (sighs) things. So first, there was a surge in the 80s that came from heightened fear that the vaccine had fatal side effects. Uh Um, this was proven false, but nonetheless, a new vaccine was manufactured in the 90s that doesn't use the whole bacterial cell okay. in the vaccine. Like it uses pieces of like the membrane proteins or something, gotcha. right? Um, this vaccine is just as effective. However, there's some evidence that people can still catch whooping cough and be asymptomatic and transfer the disease with this vaccine. Which is why we probably, which is probably why we saw another resurgence in the early two thousands. So, basically, for this new vaccine to be effective, it like almost everybody needs to be Mm -hmm. vaccinated. Otherwise, it's going to keep circulating through all these asymptomatic people who have the vaccine, and so. It's pretty bad, though, because of all the anti-vax things. Like, you need a kind of a 99% vaccinate, population vaccination for it to, for whooping cough to just, like, yeah. go away. But because of all these conspiracy theories about vaccines, like, we're not, like, there are certain populations that aren't even close to 99% vaccinated, yeah. which is really sad. We need everybody who can get vaccinated to get vaccinated because there are people who can't. So that contributes to, you know, it not being 100 percent. And then, you know, infants have to be a certain age to get a lot of these vaccines. Like they're not they don't come out of the Mm -hmm. womb and then get injected with a bunch of stuff. So they're susceptible (laughs) for a while until they're old enough to get these. (sighs) Yeah. So I found that kind of interesting, like. Their vaccine was pretty effective Mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, And then 
I might have even started losing effectiveness, but I'm not I'm not totally sure. Um, like, you know, things evolve. So eventually it might become less effective over yeah. time, you know? Yeah. But there's kind of this combination of needing this herd immunity and conspiracy theories and, you know, having a, it's impossible to find a very perfect vaccine, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> except for maybe the smallpox. But even still, like it, it changed things dramatically for a very long time and even now like very few people die from whooping cough so okay so let's see post-vaccine pearl and grace published over 60 papers together and continued improving the whooping cough vaccine and providing expertise on its trials and distribution in other parts of the world After the vaccine went into mass production in 1941, Grace took some time off to go get a PhD. (laughs) Do it. Uh, I mean, well, think about it. Yeah, just like Pearl had. Yeah. So she went to Johns Hopkins and got a PhD in microbiology, just as Pearl had done. And this time, Pearl would often travel as a correspondent for the World Health Organization, helping to establish vaccine programs in Mexico, Eastern Europe, and Central and South America. She retired in the 1950s and took a job as a lecturer at the University of Michigan, at which time Grace took over as the lab director. And they both semi-officially retired from all duties in the 60s, but would often still consult with health organizations and labs. And at this point, they were living together. And it's weird. I don't know if they lived together this whole time, but there were a bunch of references to them living together after retirement. That's interesting that they, which who, which two or all three of them lived together? Uh, just Pearl okay. and Grace. So the mm-hmm. first two. I don't know. Um, yeah, so they... Yeah, so I think it was just yeah. they were friends and they moved in together in retirement, which is that is adorable. extremely <laughs> adorable. Yeah, I it doesn't I didn't see any references to them living together this whole time, but maybe they did. I don't know. Um, so let's see. Yeah, so Pearl passed away in 1980. They were both inducted into the Michigan Women's Ooh, Hall of Fame in 1983. Awesome. And then um, Grace passed away in 1988. Meanwhile, Loney, who had gotten into this project much later, yeah. right, and found the really virulent strain, she worked for some time at the Department of Health in Grand Rapids as a microbiologist and a lot a large part of her job there was training other scientists in parasitology and bacteriology. Yes, parasitology. And then I don't know what this means, okay. but it was quoted like everywhere. It says uh Loney was selected for traveling to Europe and the Middle East with the National Council of Christians and Jews to quote Take the pulse of the people, end quote, in the area. 
I do not know what that like, means. In what with regard to disease or just in general? No idea. Like I don't know if this was part of her work with Pearl and Grace or even with the Department of Health. Like I couldn't find anything that clarified. Was she a missionary later on? Like I don't know if she was literally taking people's pulses <laughs> or if she was. Yeah, you know, or if she was just trying to get a feel for their attitudes towards something, it was. It's it confusing, is. right? It, it could mean all sorts of things. I don't know. Yeah, that's a really weird thing to say, but, out, like um, to have out of context everywhere. Exactly. Yeah, and but she was still so. And then it's like in 1956, she married. Howard Gordon and moved to Lansing's Department Ooh. of Health. So she was still working with the Department of Health hmm. this whole time. Yeah. So it might be like a health she did research on health in the in Europe and the Middle East and uh, That seems know, like a know, strange thing for like the diseases. Michigan Department of Health to do. Yeah. <laughs> and then also it was the National Council of Christians and Jews. Like, that's who she traveled with. I don't know. So, I don't know. I don't even know what that council is. That's, like, a really random council. <laughs> uh, okay. So, yeah. So, she worked for the Department of Health for for quite some time. And I don't know exactly what she did um, once she moved to Lansing. She passed away in 1999 and... She was inducted into the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame in 2000. So about 17 years after Grace and Pearl were inducted, somebody discovered her Loney's oh, contribution to the vaccine and was like, oh, I would like to include her. And there's a statue of all three women um, on Michigan State's campus, I believe. Oh, or maybe it's at the hospital they all worked at, but I can't. Remember. There's someone on Twitter <laughs> who has been trying to collect. Oh, I'm gonna have to figure out who this is. I think they even contacted us. They're trying to collect all of like, sta- like a, a list of like statues oh, of women. Right. I don't know if it's specifically his- women in that. science, but like historical women. So I gotta, yeah. I'll search through. Yeah, I'll search we through my DMs her. and see if I can figure out who this is. Yeah, or like four and DMs. It's just a cool research. They're just a cool research. Yeah, group. I think if you there's pictures of them at yes. this time, and there were a bunch of women working in their research group, like not just these three That's women. Awesome. So. It's just really cool. They hired women. It was led by women. And it was just this really, like, awesome, successful, collaborative effort. Yeah. So I thought, why not just share all of their stories? I love it. That that amuses me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's the stories of Pearl Kendrick, Grace Eldrine, and Loni Gordon and their contributions to the whooping cough vaccine that's amazing i love it yeah that was great i liked i liked it being a combination because i think often it's a lot easier to tell the story of one person but very rarely are things discovered or done in isolation so yeah 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, I. it's also like, yeah, science isn't really a lone wolf no. thing, but we often talk about it that way, you know? And like, we try to, I feel like in our podcast say, you know, they work with this person or that person, but almost all science is a team effort on some level, you know, even if it's there's technicians there or undergraduates or whoever helping. Yep. Um, yeah. Anyway. I loved it. Yay. Yay. Yay on vaccines. Woo. All right. Should we work? Yeah. Work, 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 work. All right. This is the women who work section, giving shout outs to badass ladies, making history today. Um, yeah. And today my shout out goes to like a whole group of ladies. Um, so it goes to all the female leaders across the world. Uh, who have been doing a really remarkable job keeping their country safe and controlling the virus. There's a lot of um, yeah. a lot of male leaders who are also doing a really good job keeping the numbers down and taking this seriously. But I think <laughs> there was an article in The Guardian that was just saying that by, by a long shot, there's not as many female leaders. And all the countries with female leaders have taken the coronavirus really seriously, have put things in place, have been like really... Mm-hmm. Um, have taken like swift, decisive action such that those countries yeah. have remained with really low numbers of infections and really low death rates. So that's so the women cool. are doing a great that. job keeping their countries safe. So I wanted to give like Aww. a little bit of a shout out to some of the leaders in particular. So, uh, Angela Merkel, so she's the German chancellor. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that she had a doctorate in quantum chemistry. Yeah. Oh, you didn't no. know that? Yeah, she's yeah. great. So, <laughs> I, I think because of her like expertise and thinking critically mm-hmm. and scientifically, she's also excelled in explaining the scientific basis behind the coronavirus yeah. and the government's lockdown strategy to the German mm-hmm. people making it really understandable to people why they need to do what they're doing and why the government's taking those actions. So they've had a really success but yeah. really successful at keeping those numbers down in Germany. That is something I know about her, but I forget it all yeah. the time. You know? Yeah, I did and not know that. And it makes me love her even more. Yeah. Then the New Zealand Prime Minister uh, Jacinta Ardern. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, but she put in place this like strict 14-day quarantine for those entering the country. Mm-hmm. Quarantine for those entering the country. And then this subsequently strict two-week quarantine, urging New Zealanders to unite in shared responsibility to keep each other safe. And so far, they've only had like 18 deaths in New Zealand. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That's yeah. great. So, and then Denmark's prime minister met Frederiksen, met Mette Frederiksen. I'm not sure. She took swift, decisive action, closing its borders, shutting down schools and universities, and banning large groups in like mid March. So they've had less than 400 wow, deaths. Okay. Wow. Oh my gosh. Then Taiwan's Ugh, president. To think where we could have. I know. Been. I know. <laughs> 
uh, Taiwan's president Tsai Ing-wen. She um, also acted fast, putting in over a hundred control and containment measures during the first couple weeks, making a full lockdown actually unnecessary. Uh, and they've only had six deaths wow. in their country. <gasps> Ugh, I'm so jealous. <laughs> And then in Norway, Prime Minister Erna Solberg uh, emphasized having scientists make the big medical decisions, such as early lockdown and thorough testing. And they've had only a hundred and mm-hmm. like eighty-two deaths in their country. So they've all done really good jobs of like wow. flattening the curve, minimizing the spread of this disease, and taking action really quickly yeah. um, early on. And then finally, special shout out to Jiong Un Kwong. I probably am pronouncing that very wrongly. But she is the head of South Korea's Center for Disease Control. And she's been like the world's essentially like like a model example of like how to handle this disease. And they've been keeping the toll the death toll down very low and flattening the curve and like all eyes are on south korea of like how well they've done in yeah. flattening that curve yeah, they did. Um, and that's all thanks to her and her expertise especially because they're like closer to the origin mm-hmm. of the outbreak where those regions had less time to develop a yeah. response yep. right like before yeah there's a lot more travel yeah it's really remarkable so yeah so the, my, my shout just goes to all of these amazing leaders who yeah that took great. this seriously um and weren't afraid to just mm-hmm. call the shots lock things down and i think all their countries are doing yeah. really well because of that so awesome. yeah oh, love it some i mean good news cool. for other countries some <laughs> Maybe not for us, but you know, some some countries are doing really good. Uh, oh man, yeah, I can't even think about. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so you know, this has been our episode. I hope you liked it. You got a whole handful <laughs> of ladies. You got binders full of yeah, ladies today. A lot of inspiring <laughs> trifectas. Uh. Um, and if you like this episode yeah. and you like this podcast, please uh, rate, review, subscribe, share it to a friend. If you know somebody who doesn't know what to do mm-hmm. with all their time that they have on their hands in quarantine, maybe suggest this podcast to them. We'd love yeah, more people to hear sure. about these awesome women uh, and spread the word. And then, as always, thank you to Caitlin Friesen for the awesome art that she's made of these uh, of some of our steminists and to artichoke for our awesome theme music. Yeah. And as always, and go, go, stem- stimulate yourself. yourself. All right. Bye. bye. <laughs>